We interrupt this program to bring you the Utility Players Classified Results. Edinburgh Rugby 23, Monster 25, Scotland 1, Slovakia 0, Tommy Fleetwood 9 under, tied 13th. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Welcome to Season 3 of the Utility Players, uh, we are back after a number of weeks away, and uh, we're back at, at, a, at a time where not many of our teams actually played this week, Rory. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. Obviously, we've had international break and COVID over with the Titans in, in America. And it feels like, despite the fact we've been away for so long, there's not that much going on at this actual moment. It's a bit, it's a bit of a strange feeling. Yeah, well, certainly a lot has gone in the last month or so. Um, I, I should have been bringing you a, a Tennessee Titans update after four weeks of the NFL season. Um, uh, unfortunately, they whether it's due to their own devices or just some bad luck, um, have had some issues with uh, COVID-19 among, in amongst their team. So they have, they've not played in probably about a week and a half. They are scheduled to play tonight. So as we record Tuesday morning, um, they've got a game tonight. Um, so it'd be good to see them back on the field. Um, however, two of our closest teams, you know, Edinburgh Rugby for me and, and Scottish football for you, had two very different outcomes this week. Edinburgh for much of the game, controlling the game against Munster, having the score and, and, and letting a CJ stand a try in the 76th minute, ruin what ultimately was a much better performance than neutral Cockrell side has seen so far in this, this new season. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a very sort of Munster sort of game, though. You feel like Munster are one of those teams that are just very good at staying in the match and, and winning it at the end and, and, and finding a way to get over the line. And maybe that's where... The Edinburgh team that are much improved, they need to just get that little bit better and have that final bit of game analysis and game awareness to get over the line in these tight games. But no matter what the result is in the Edinburgh game, you're not going to dampen my spirits after Scotland sneaking through to the final of the European Championship qualifiers and, and being top of their Nations League group with um, seven wins in a row now for the Scots. And it's just looking all good for Scottish football. And it's the first time we've been able to say that for a very long time. I mean, obviously, if not, maybe had any dominant performances yet and any kind of matches that make you go wow but I said wins are wins and they're finding ways to get over the line which is something that we normally criticise Scotland for so I think there's right to be a little bit more happy for Scotland football fans I completely agree however it feels like a perfectly set up Scottish storyline where they suck you in they suck you in everyone feels excited and bang you know, in fact, they're not even playing Norway. They've managed to avoid uh, Haaland and they're playing now against Serbia to get into the Euros now next year. So even if you look at that on paper, they potentially have the slightly easier draw than they could have had. But it's so Scottish that everyone's going to get excited and what's going to happen. And I'm sorry to sound pessimistic. And similarly, you know, top of their Nations League group, Already little whispers of if they win the group, if they can beat the Czech Republic tomorrow night, does that mean that suddenly they can get into the top tier of, of the Euro League? And I worry when we start to get hopes up as Scottish as Scottish <laughs> fans, what that's ultimately going to lead to. But 
all that's ahead of us. You know, let's worry about what's happened. And and you're right. If 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 we don't enjoy these moments, what are we going to enjoy? If this was other teams and we weren't having dominant performances but winning games, the narrative would be, you know, good teams or solid teams find ways to win even when they, you know, don't dominate the games or don't play particularly well. And um, and that's what Scotland are managing to do at the moment. Yeah, agreed. And I think there's been a lot of talk about Scotland going to this three in the back over the last kind of three fixtures and whether that has then maybe detracted on them going forward I and mean, they're not creating enough because they get less like creative players up the pitch but at the same I get that and I, and I think that is a very valid argument and they've not created lots of shots on target although they did look better um, on the weekend against Slovakia but at the same time they look harder to beat with three at the back and they look like a hard team to beat and I guess when they're going to be going into big international games for a team like Scotland that aren't going to outplay a lot of international teams because they don't have some of the creative talent that some of these European teams have being a hard team to beat will probably serve them in good stead long term. But you're right. I think that there needs to be a little bit of like controlled optimism. But I think that, as I said, we, we have so many bleak days as Scotland football fans. So at least enjoy these, enjoy these a little bit is is certainly needed. But with the knowledge that we still will be going into Serbia as underdogs, there's like no, there's no doubt about that. Serbia are a good side, and yes, Norway probably would have been the harder draw, but Serbia are still a good side, and we will be underdogs going into that game. So there's absolutely no guarantees there at all. But you do go in with a little bit of belief, which is something I think that will make a massive impact on the Scottish team. Because I think so often the Scottish team, the lack of belief from the fans kind of filters into the team. And actually maybe not having fans in Hamden was a good thing for them the other night. Because when it's nil-nil, the game's not going that well for them. That kind of angst of the crowd can sometimes get out into the pitch and I think affect the players' performances. So maybe they were benefiting not having the home crowd in the other night in such a close game. But um, coming back to the Nations League, I think you're right. It is There's still three games to go, but I think the game against the Czech Republic tomorrow night is a huge game. So obviously Scotland on seven points, the Czech Republic on six. But if Scotland can win that, suddenly they're four points clear with two games to go. And you think, well, that is a really good situation to be in. So tomorrow night's game is now massive for Scotland. And if they can win that, they've really set themselves up to potentially do well in that group. No, I, I think you agree. And, and there seems to be, when I watch, I don't watch these games as closely as you do, but but the games I've watched and the sort of feeling I've get, been getting is you know, Scotland football teams, you always expect them to get up for the big games when they're underdogs. You know, when they obviously get play against the old enemy, when they play against, you know, think about games against France and Italy previously, those big games where they're massive underdogs, they like wearing that, that, that medal of being the kind of scrappy, you know, against all odds it's when they are either favorites or kind of in a neutral kind of game script of playing teams believed to be on a path them but I, there's something slightly different about this stevie clark team you know whether it's stevie clark himself whether it's the personnel now in that 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 that, that squad is that there seems to be a, a more of a cohesion and a more of a kind of it doesn't matter who we're playing against there's an identity so going into these games against the czech republic and then and then against serbia <clears throat> next month which, you know, quote-unquote bigger games because of what's riding on them, I, I just get the feeling they can handle them better. I just get the feeling they, they can... They're, they're, and and almost I almost feel these, these Nations League games work in Scotland's favour because of that. Because they're playing higher-ranked teams more regularly, there's less occasions where they are quote unquote the the, the, the dominant favourites. You know, often what's let Scotland down in qualifying groups over the last couple of decades, it's not necessarily play against the bigger teams in the group. It's it's going to places 
around, you know, like Malta or going to places like Liechtenstein or going to places, smaller countries where they're ranked 300th whatever in the world and drawing or even losing and uh, and playing against one man and his dog and, you know, a three, three o'clock kickoff or, or, you know, rather than an evening game at hand. And so I think... Um, I think there's a different feeling about what Stevie Clark is, is his squad is about now, and and hopefully the fruits of the labour will, will be seen to that. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think the big mark of how Stevie Clark has trying to change this team will be the next World Cup qualifying campaign, which is obviously starting at next year. Because at the end of the day, the Euros would be great, but he, that he's kind of come into this Euro qualifying campaign off the back of what Alex McLeish was doing beforehand. And he's kind of taken that over and he's and he's raised him to a position to get to this final. But I don't think this final will, will make or break Stevie Clark as a manager. And I don't think the Nations League will make or break Stevie Clark as a manager. I think that's just like a chance to give them more small victories. I think, as you said, they're going into the next World Cup qualifying campaign in a, in a difficult group, but they're going to be playing. I can't quite remember who's in their group now, but I think they'll be playing a lot of these games, a lot of these smaller teams who they have struggled against previously. I mean, it was Kazakhstan in the last one and they lost 3-0 to Kazakhstan, which must have been one of the lowest points in Scottish football over the past wee while. So yeah, I think that World Cup qualifying campaign will be massive to really show about how Stevie Clark has taken over this team and how his regime is going. Well, moving from one Scottish international team to another, Scottish Rugby announced their squad for their final Six Nations game against Wales and, and Autumn Internationals. Return of uh, Finn Russell, uh, which I think for all Scottish rugby fans is is great to see. Whether you, with that uh, coming to a head between himself and Gregor Townsend, whether you were... Um, in Team Russell or Team Townsend over what the reported uh, misunderstanding was. I think for for everyone involved, we all know that a a rugby team with Finn Russell in is a a better rugby team um, than without. So it seems to Rory that by the reports and the suggestions out there, and they are there are only suggestions that the both parties have have had a little bit of a sombering moment and and made some concessions, and and hopefully it looks like both coaches and players have, are going to sort of work to understand the other one a little bit better. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Obviously, you only get the kind of brief comments that are made by these in these interviews that come out, and and I feel that obviously mo- both players are trying to produce a bit more of like a harmonious feel between the both parties. So maybe it's a bit of a PR game trying to say that it's all love and everything, but it does feel like both Russell and Townsend have have made certain compromises and have both tried to understand each other a bit more. And I think my kind of hope and my optimism is that this might be a good turning point in the reign of Gregor Townsend. I think a feeling amongst Scottish rugby fans that so far Gregor Townsend's reign hasn't been as successful as as what we would hope. It's been all right. They've had some good results. They've had some poor results. And obviously the World Cup didn't go as well as Scotland would like at all. But I feel like there's not really been a feeling that he has developed the team further than what Vern Cotter had. Obviously, Van Cotter did a big part for Scottish rugby, and they don't really seem to have pushed on from there. They've kind of stuck and, and stayed in this same position. It almost feels a little bit like it is still Cotter's team in a way. And maybe now this kind of moment will have created some sort of transparency between the coaching staff and the playing staff, and maybe created a more positive environment so that the Scotland rugby team can and can develop to the next stage. I think there has been a bit of a transition period from Cotter to Townsend because we've seen a lot of young players come through, the likes of Blair Kinghorn, Adam Hastings, Jamie Ritchie, Darcy Graham, etc. have started coming into this team and there has been a bit of a time for them to feel like they are international players. And these next few years are going to really show whether Townsend can create something successful for the Scotland team or whether it said it is almost 
detracted from the work that Vern Cotter has done. And again, maybe a little bit of Scottish optimism here, but certainly there's a hope that potentially now that they've seen the differences with Russell and they can and they can potentially use this as a to create a more positive environment around the Scotland team. And actually, when you look at the Six Nations, Scotland is still one of the the few teams that can actually still win it. I mean, they need Italy to win their last two games, which feels pretty optimistic. But you know that shows that things aren't all doom and gloom around Scotland. And actually, a win against Wales could prove that it'd be three wins in the Six Nations and not a, a terrible Six Nations campaign for them. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I echo everything you you say there. I've personally been of the um, opinion, and it's just my opinion, that the Scottish rugby has has stagnated since since Gregor Townsend's come in um, and could even argue gone backwards. I think the success he had in the back of his first couple of years, personally for me, was on the back of the, the good fundamentals that, that Vern Cotter had put in um, and that he had, uh, you know, then there was this kind of flamboyant expansive exciting brand of rugby that Gregor Townsend had brought and was playing and etc and um and that's great that's fine you know the, the way that we've seen some of the southern hemisphere teams play especially in New Zealand at times but all of that is on the back of good fundamentals first and foremost and i over sort of the the, the latter ha- half so far of the Townsend tenure it looks like those fundamentals have slid out the the team and certainly not as as disciplined and and as fundamentally sound and without them that that flowing brand of rugby doesn't doesn't work as as effectively i worry and again this is just my opinion not based on anything other than my my gut that this uh, townsend russell you know shaking of hands and all smiley is is just papering over some cracks they both they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had the breakdown in communication and the falling out they had if they both weren't strong-minded, strong-willed people. And um, and how can you suddenly, I don't see how suddenly that can all change over a conversation, a handshake. But I just think at the moment, there seems to be a PR narrative driven by the SRU that they want to control everything. And, you know, I may well be wrong, um, but it's just, just, just the sense I get. And and you know you're right. We go we go down to to Wales and and we win and then it's three victories. But Scotland haven't won in Wales, yeah. In 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 I mean at least a couple of decades. And you know they, I don't think they've even come close really, apart from when Phil Godman got sent off. We're down to thirteen men and Shane Williams scored those two tries, two thousand and ten or, or something yeah. around there. And so and that's including you know the Doddy Weir um, Foundation games that have been played, um, etc. So. I'd be really intrigued to see what it's like. It's going to be a different autumn international series, but personally, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much optimism there is uh, around around Scottish rugby at the moment. It seems to be that because of the break, because of the pandemic, because of everything else, and sports returning, well, great to see it's returning. That it's kind of potentially, you know, pushing the dust underneath the carpet of actually what the the discord is potentially between the coaching staff and the players. I mean, I think there's a few things there. And I think you said there's not much optimism and I am I'm certainly ever the optimist about Scottish sports in general. I'm kind of quite brutally optimistic sometimes and maybe I shouldn't be. So I think maybe that is where a lot of my views do stem from. Um, but I think certainly with the Russell and Townsend situation, I think one of the important things to remember is that these two, these are a player and coach that know each other very, very well. 
obviously they worked together for seven odd years at Glasgow and worked together very successfully. And that was a making of both of them as players and coaches. Townsend's time at Glasgow and that period of Finn Russell at Glasgow was certainly a time where they both really became considered to be top coaches on a European level and top player on a European level. So you, you do feel like there should be some sort of understanding there because they've worked together for so long. And hopefully maybe that will help them reconcile some sort of relationship rather than kind of a first impression that has gone badly. But I said, that's how potentially I see it. And I think it's an interesting one. You say there's no optimism around Scottish rugby and, and Scottish rugby has gone backwards. And I, and I do see exactly what you're saying. And I do, and I do almost agree with you in a sense. I think Fern Cotter's team was a better team than what we have now. But I also think that there has been certainly a time when Gregor Townsend has been forced to play a lot of young players. I certainly remember the Six Nations in 2019, we had a lot of 23, 24-year-olds playing, mainly because of injuries. There's a lot of injuries to our more experienced players, our Hamish Watsons of the world, etc., which meant that we had young back rowers. And we had, obviously, Adam Hastings playing at standoff because of the Finn Russell incident in this year's Six Nations. And it felt like a lot of the players weren't quite ready for international rugby yet because they're very good club players, but they were a bit young for that sort of stage. And also at the same time, you look at this Six Nations and we think, oh, it's not gone that great and, and we and we do way to well to win in Wales because, yes, we have done so badly in Wales every time we've gone there. But at the same time, going to the Millennium Stadium without a Welsh crowd is going to be a totally different experience and hopefully a more positive experience for any visiting time and certainly for Scotland. But also you look at this Six Nations now and I think that you look at the Ireland game, if Stuart Hogg doesn't drop the ball over the line, we potentially win that game. We played the better rugby for most of the game, and I said that was a real moment that kind of let us down. You look at the England game, which was played in the worst weather I think I've ever seen, and I think you can't really take anything from that game because it's just such an anomaly because it was literally played in the middle of a storm and that it just didn't really have any bearings into how the two teams actually shaped up. We then did a good job to beat Italy convincingly, and then we played really well to beat France. And you kind of think that even if one of those games goes the other way, the England or the Ireland game, which they could well have done, We've actually suddenly in a really good position, winning three from four. And then the Wales game is just a, a case of you, you try to get a result in Wales for the first time in a long time. So it doesn't feel like we're far away. But I guess the problem that you've identified, a lot of Scotland fans, fans have identified, is that we have been not that far away for a very long time now. And under Gregor Townsend, it doesn't feel like we're getting any closer, where under Van Cotty, you felt like each year you were getting closer. I think the thing for me, hearing you say that, is that if you took the quality of players as individuals that the Scotland rugby team have now and and gave it to Vern Cotter when he was in charge and the way that he had the team set up and the team playing would be, I think, it'd be may, I'd be, I, think, I think would be very successful. I think what is allowing Scotland to be successful now is the fact that we actually have some very good individual players who are having to play as individuals to allow it to, to, to be close or win games. That's just my sense. It's just my sense, just sitting on the sideline and watching. Um, you know, it's been a long time since we've watched you know, Scotland play rugby or any international rugby, but just it doesn't seem like there is the same level of team play, of team dynamic, of team what have you. And and Vern Cotter has managed to upskill a lot of their players through the way he set up the team, through discipline, through fundamentals. If you could upskill the players we now have, and whether that is due to the fact that Townsend blooded them and, and had that opportunity, you know, you could give them credit for that. I think that's where I, I feel that the, the difference 
the difference would be. And it's something we touched on our very first episode with Stuart McInally. Something I don't like is this, there seems to be, whether it's to injury or other reasons, I can't, I cannot imagine it's all injury. There seems to be very little consistency in selection under Townsend. We've had about six different captains. We've had, I mean, I don't know how many different players have been playing. You know, you look at the successful teams, you look at, you know, the All Black teams, the England teams, the South African teams, the Irish teams have been successful in Six Nations World Cups and Rugby Championships. There is a fundamental core of 11, 12, 13 players who play for a two, three year cycle. Scotland never have that. They never, it always seems to be chopping and changing. It always seems to be a, a new back row being introduced, a new centre partnership, a new winger coming in, you know, going through, rotating, apart from Laidlaw, rotating through a scrum hearts, whether it's Pergos or um, Price or whoever. It just doesn't seem to be that consistent team. And that says to me that Townsend doesn't know. And if you if you don't know your best team four years into the job or whatever it is, or at least have then then that that, that in itself as well is is a con, is a concern. And maybe I'm being a bit hard hard on him, um, but I just think that we are perpetually almost there. And for once, we have the players and the skill players, not just a, a, a big pack you know, who we can win in, in storms, you know, 12 to nine and actually go out and, and compete. I mean, I think, I think that was a good point about selection. I think there's certainly been a lot of chopping and changing. I think they have, we have been hit hard about injuries the most. That's certainly the feeling I've got watching Scotland. We always seem to have a fresh person injured. But I think, yeah, you're right. I think certainly in the centres, there's an area where we just can't seem to nail down who our best centres is, whether it's Peter Horn, Hugh Jones, Duncan Taylor, Rory Hutchison, Sam Johnston. Like, it just seems to be that it's a new one every single game. Nick Gregg, like, they just all seem to be getting a shot and he doesn't seem to quite know who the best centre pairing is. I think the back row is actually almost a case of... <laughs> there's. We've got so much talent in the back row. It's so competitive. There's probably five or six players that could nail down a spot, but they're all playing very, very well. So that's causing why there's shopping and changing. I think it also comes to the fact that we do still have a very young team. A lot of our players are kind of under the age of 26, 27, which in rugby terms is still very young. You kind of think in rugby is, is a sort of game where you do peak in your late 20s. So I think there's a lot of still development in a lot of the players in the Scotland team. And that's why it is changing whether like who is at the top at the time but there does have to be a time where you, you do settle on a, your consistent players right these are the players who are making up the core of my my best team because you're right I think I think he doesn't know what is I think he doesn't know who his best team is and I think that it, there has to be a stage where he does make that decision I mean what I would say to that before we move on is that if you're constantly going to pick 22 23 year olds and then in a year's time, bring another 22, 23-year-old in. You're never going to get someone peaking at 27, 28, if that is the peak age. I don't know what the peak age for the players is. And it, as you say, it just seems to be the next one and the next one and the next one. Um, and uh, and it, it seems to be, well, you can always hyperfine the fact, well, we've got a young developing team. At some point, a young developing team needs to stop being a young developing team. Otherwise, you're always going to stagnate. Uh, talking of people who, who are neither young nor developing anymore, this weekend we saw uh, Rafael Nadal match Roger Federer with his 20th Grand Slam title, beating Novak Djokovic comfortably at Roland Garros in straight sets to win, I think, his 13th French Open championship. I'd say matching uh, Federer's 20. Uh, Grand Slams. This that blew my mind. 
that, that's that, blown my mind. That, that Nadal has the same number as Federer. I've always been of the mind, and whether it's because over here in the UK, obviously Wimbledon takes such precedence and, and Federer's dominance at Wimbledon over the last 15-odd years is what stands out to us. Um, but, I, I mean, it then opens the debate, Rory, is Federer the greatest of all time if, if Nadal is now matched him and the way that Nadal looks like he's going on clay could easily go past him. Yeah, I mean I can't believe Nadal's won twenty. Like I knew he was good, but I never realised like he was that good. I guess yeah, I'm just trying to work it out because in my head, my initial reaction was well, Nadal is amazing and is great, but wouldn't be as good as Federer because he's won so many on clay. Where Federer has won his kind of more split across the board. But at the same time, Nadal's won Wimbledon once and Federer's won the French once. So maybe so so obviously Federer's not so great on clay and Nadal's not so great on gla- grass, and then they've both done all right on hardcore. So it maybe is more a slightly more comparable than, than you think. And obviously it's not maybe not quite as exaggerated because Federer hasn't won thirteen Wimbledons compared to Nadal's thirteen Grand Slams on clay. So I still feel like as an all rounder Federer probably does have the slight edge on Nadal, but I think it is much closer now in terms of who is the best. Yeah, and I mean, they've both had injuries over the course of their career, but, but the, the sort of hiatus that Nadal had for a good couple of years where he really struggled with the, with the knee, uh, etc., would that have been, you know, more? Obviously, Federer's missed a lot of the last 12 months as well with his own injuries, etc., etc. Yeah, but I, I just... It astounds me because I've always, I've always personally seen Nadal as this second, second string, a very good second string. But don't get me wrong. But do we underestimate Claire? I mean, if you if you look around the the, the the tennis circuits, the majority of the I see outside the Grand Slams are are either are played on hard court, mm-hmm. um, and so Clay almost gets this kind of younger sibling attachment to it as is as it's a kind of secondary surface or third surface to to grass or to to clay or to hard surface um but if this was golf and we were talking about playing in you know european conditions compared to american conditions we're talking about links golf compared to parkland golf we were talking about you know bermuda grass uh etc all these different variables we all know that different golfers play better on in different conditions, but ultimately it would come down to who won the most. And I wonder if Nadal doesn't get enough credit, which uh, is a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, and I think certainly my instinct is to say, well, he's only won like he's won seven, not on clay, and that's nowhere near Federer's twenty. But then again. Federer's only won one on clay, so it proves that Federer has it also as a surface that he isn't so good at, and he's won Wimbledon what eight times, seven times, something like that. But I guess then that's still quite a lot on hardcore, with more than Nadal has won on hardcore. So I think Federer will always have this. Not Federer. I think Nadal will always have this tag on him because he's won so many at the French. I feel like it will. It feels like it will devalue his 20 grand slams because he's won so many in one place now whether it should is a totally different conversation i don't know whether it should because you still have to win them at the end of the day you're still like you're still playing the best players in the world and you still have to come out on top but i i, I have a feeling that that 
Nadal's achievement will get devalued over time. And his achievement on clay won't be devalued. He will always be considered the best clay player ever. And, and Murray, said, Murray said his record will never get beaten. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think his record will ever get beaten. Nobody will ever win more than 13, 13 French Opens. And to be honest, he could probably go on, go well, go on and, and win more. But because, while he's got such a disparity in victories on clay versus victories in other majors... I think that he won't be considered as good as Federer. Now, you might say that's wrong, and I and I think that's totally an argument to say that's wrong, but I don't think he will get considered the same as Federer. As you were speaking, I was just think if you think about it, in terms of the US, the Australian and Wimbledon, over the time that Nadal and Federer have been around, there's probably been a, a greater, well, obviously there's been a greater number of, of, of contenders in those three other majors. You know, with Djokovic, with Murray, with Federer, with Chilich, with other couple of people who have popped up here and there. So, therefore, Federer winning at Wimbledon or winning at the US or what have you, it's almost greater competition Yeah, to win those ones because of the higher quality of people on those surfaces. Yeah. Whereas, you know, credit where credit's due, his, his ability on clay is... is, is you know, Fathom's belief, but because he hasn't got people of that level to compete against on that surface, you know, and 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 that's not Nadal's fault. Yeah, that is not. It makes that's not. You know, other other professional tennis players need to step up and need to find a way to be as successful. And you know, not almost wring their hands and go, oh well, it's one of the three. Well. We'll try, but if it if if Nadal gets it again, so be it. I'm not saying that's their attitude, but one could believe it could be that way. The other potential debate that's come up this week in terms of greats, um, Lewis Hamilton now matched Michael Schumacher in in number of Grand Prix victories. Now, this has sparked a debate that has been talked about for years. Any other sport, or almost any other sport, if a a British athlete or an English athlete, was to have this level of dominance and be the greatest. So let's take Andy Murray. So say Andy Murray had had just done what Nadal has done and matched Federer as the greatest number of Grand Slam wins. He would be lauded in British culture, in British sporting culture. He'd be lauded till the end of time. Why is Lewis Hamilton not being? I know, it's bizarre. And... and and, I, and this is something I thought for a while that Lewis Hamilton doesn't get enough credit for for what he has done. I think partly because, as a, as a kind of young black man coming from the UK to rise to a position to make it to the best in the world of Formula One racing, which is traditionally quite an elite sort of sport and an elite club and a very kind of systematic sport and and kind of it's very much kept within like the traditional f1 communities and it's hard for new people to break into that communities and certainly in a sport which has seen very little black athletes excel in because of a lot of the the systems that involved for him to rise to become the top of that sport is such an amazing success story in itself but then to take it one step further and for him to rise to become the the joint best and I think realistically will very soon become the best because he doesn't look like he's going to be stopping winning Grand Prix anytime soon. It's just, it's just phenomenal. And I think that's what puts it into perspective is that it is Michael Schumacher that he is, that he has joined at the top there. 
when you hear Michael Schumacher's name, you you think great. You think absolute sporting great. I think he is one of the those like really like elite names. You know, in all the sports, you get those names that will just forevermore be remembered with such great like gusto and and such so much fame. Like Federer will be one, and Tiger Woods will be one, and Nicholas and Messi will be one, and Maradona. You get these names, and Michael Schumacher is one of them names. And the fact that Lewis Hamilton has has equaled his record and is set to beat it really highlights what he has achieved in motorsport. And I think that I don't get the impression in the UK we, we put him on that pedestal with our greatest ever athletes. I don't get the impression that we do. And I almost wonder whether he gets a bigger kind of reputation o- abroad because other F1 nations just see him as the top because he's been so dominant for so long. But as British, we, as British, we people, we seem to de devalue his achievements. I don't know whether it's now because he's moved out the UK, he's taken on sort of like quite a lot of Americanisms in his like behavior and et cetera. And we don't really like that in Britain. And he, and I don't know whether it's something to do with that or whether we just don't value motorsport as a sport. I think that's a big part of it. And I mean, whenever he's up for sports personality of the year, which seems to be most years, people don't really take him seriously. They think, well, he's just, it's not really a sport. It's all to be with the team and the car and not because of his individual achievements, etc. But he's still got to beat his teammate. He's in exactly the same car with the same team around him. So it just showed that there is definitely some sort of individual talent there. And I think we do just devalue him for all, all those reasons that I just said. I mean, you've, you've just answered the two questions I was going to ask is, is where motorsport is perceived in British sporting culture compared to other parts of the world. Um, I don't think it's as, as highly valued, quite rightly or wrongly. And as you said there, there's that element of always, you know, the British cynicism, is it, is it the car rather than the man? I, uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, that there's probably a bit of both that comes in there. You had, did just say, though, you know, he's still got to beat the person who's in exactly the same car. I do disagree with that slightly because within a team dynamic, there is a driver one and a driver two, like we see with pace setters in, in long distance running or in the Tour de France or, or what have you, where you're a team for to support whatever. And, and there will be team decisions because they will want to win the Constructors' Championship, but also at times will have to allow their car number one to um, to take take pride of place. Um you know, but Hamilton has earned that right to be in the first car, um, and so it's 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 a real it's a real strange one. It's uh, you know the same you can make some arguments at times with snooker and darts, where well they're almost seen sometimes as more lauded sports people. When actually, if we're going to define sports by physical exertion, has a lot less physical exertion than having to drive a car around. So. The British, just British culture, um, you know, deciding that one sport is more popular than the other. Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm, I'm also going to take it back to a conversation we had in last series about what sports we get to see on, on BBC and, and national television channels. I think certainly it was a case that 10, 15, 20 years ago, Formula One was on the BBC every weekend. And every weekend, a much bigger audience would watch Michael Schumacher winning the Grand Prix every single week. And that's why I think even Michael Schumacher is considered higher within the UK than Lewis Hamilton is, where in a lot of Lewis Hamilton's era, Formula One has moved to Sky and it's on Sky F1 every weekend. And and it probably his victories go slightly below the carpet because people don't really see them because they're too busy watching something else on the weekend. And it's not that, oh, the F1's on BBC, let's put it on. So I think how often and how regularly and how su- he wins and how successful he's been has kind of gone unnoticed to the mass population as well with the move of 
Formula One racing not being on the BBC anymore. That very good point. Yeah, no longer hungover Sundays spent on the on the sofa <laughs> yeah, exactly. watching watching the Formula. Same with Ski Sunday. I remember Ski Sunday probably a bit before your time, but um, I think it actually still does exist in some form. But no, uh, absolutely right. It's exposure and what's what's put in what's put in front. But but money's going to talk, um, and until. You know, we're going to open up the, the whole debate of higher taxes means do we get these, uh, you know, paying for the right to see these things? We, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. We won't discuss that now. But a couple of little final things to discuss. Uh, a couple of potential pieces of news coming out, or one piece of news coming out the, the Premier League and one potential one we might discuss later down the line. Um, with no fans in the stands looking like it's going to be set for a while, um, slight change to the way that the uh, Premier League is going to be broadcast uh, on the television, on, on Sky and BT. No longer they're going to be showing every game uh, to be watched. There's now going to be a pay-per-view £15 fee for anyone who wants to watch it. Uh, the other piece of, of potential news is that Man United and Liverpool have uh, put forward a proposal for a restructuring of, uh, of the Football League. Um, thus far, it's only a proposal, but it would involve a decreasing of the number of teams in the Premier League from 20 to 18, the removal of the League Cup and the uh, Community Shield, as well as more powers for those teams that have been in the Premier League for the longest to make decisions over structuring and TV rights and deals. It would also involve a bailout package for uh, teams lower down the pyramid. Um, so a lot, a lot to get into there, but at the moment, it's only been a proposal put forward by two teams. So it'll be intriguing to track how that goes. But the one thing that is going to be happening is that £15 fee for, for pay-per-view for watching the game. And Roy, we debated this off-air a couple of days ago. And to me, on the face of it, I don't really see, you know, excluding the argument you're, you're making about, you know, m- making sport as available for as many people as possible on, on quote-unquote free to wear. But as a basic idea, people would be paying to go to see the games in the stadiums anyway. So asking someone to pay £15 for a game that isn't already being televised as agreed to by the networks and by the Premier League, £15 is cheaper than what you would have to pay to get into a game anyway. So actually, as a, as a principle of getting money back into the game, as a principle of getting fans to, to put their money back into watching their team, um, I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. Now, obviously, you have to have Sky Sports already or bt sport for that to be possible um it also doesn't answer the question of the um season ticket holders which i know you'll want to talk about but as a basic principle of 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 because you can't have fans in the stands paying to watch your team play that's no different than if you wanted to go and sit in the stands and watch it i i i get what you're saying and i think i think asking people to pay for games that weren't going to be shown on tv anyway is fine as a concept but there's a few issues with how it's not been done well. I think the one you just highlighted there is that you you aren't just paying £15 for the game, you are also paying however much a month for your subscription. And it's not even like you're having to pay one subscription. If you want, you have to be able to pay a BT Sport and a Sky Sports subscription because it is across both of them. They're both having pay-per-view systems. And someone, I mean, someone did a calculation and basically said if it was agreed that if it turned out that 40% of your team's games weren't shown on telly, you would have to pay 
an average £700 a year to watch every single one of your team's games, including Amazon subscriptions, Sky Sports subscriptions, BT, and £15 for the pay-per-view games. It would come to about £700 if 40% of your games weren't on telly, which just seems like a lot of money. I, I don't know the average price of season tickets in for Premier League clubs, but I feel like... It, not all clubs, some clubs will be more than seven hundred pounds, but not all clubs will be seven hundred pounds for a season ticket to see the games in the stadium. Now, granted, that doesn't give you every game, it doesn't give you away games, etc. So there's lots of anomalies there. But I also think that the fact that then season ticket holders, who a lot of clubs have still been getting people to pay, don't get any extra rights to watch the pay per view games, and that's just left them totally unfairly treated. If you ask me, if you've paid for a season ticket, you deserve right to be able to watch your game, even if you can't go to the stadium, whether it's a online streaming platform based on your club's website or something that it is. Or, so I think that a system that's running in the championship right now makes so much more sense where the pay-per-view is run by the clubs rather than the channels. And therefore the clubs can put forward a way to have their season ticket holders have free access to that, that game, that stream, etc., And then, Anyone else who wants to watch that as a one-off then pays their £15. The issue with that is we're seeing in the Championship is that the quality of streams are much poorer because the clubs aren't having the financials to put massive cameras all over the place and, and everything that, that Sky are able to do. And so it, there is a disparity there. And if they could find a way that Sky operated the cameras but the clubs got to show their season ticket holders the game for free, that would work quite well. So it, the concept is fine, but there's just a few ways that it could be ran to be much more efficient, I think. Yeah, and it just goes down to monopoly on the market, doesn't it? We will talk about this quite regularly. And, and without the way sport is now, football is in, in the UK and in England now, is that without the money from Sky and BT, it's not going to function. And so they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here is they have to keep, they have to keep the networks happy. They have to keep that money filtering into the game. And... Um, Unfortunately, the, cl- the clubs don't really have any power to to, to change that. You know, unless uh, unless the clubs were going to pay a levy to Sky Sports and BT and Amazon, whoever Premier Sport, whoever's covering it, pay, pay a levy, and then on the back of that, they got to redistribute it. I don't know. I don't know how cost effective that would be. Um, but uh, it's it seems to be there is a. There is a solution there that's fair for all, but it's on a, almost kind of feel like a bit rushed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, well, we were hoping to get fans in October. COVID hasn't played ball as COVID isn't going to do. And we're trying to have make an uncontrollable situation in a global pandemic controllable and uh, the human elements being taken out of it. So, you know, if, if it helps keep the game afloat, you know, if we look back in 10, 20 years time, are fans going to be upset because it kept the game afloat? Because it kept some money, extra money coming into it? Probably not. If 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 there's going to have to be massive changes and financial cuts anyway, then um, then it seems a bit off. But that's all prediction and hearsay. Um, I mean, I know we have to wrap this up, so I'll be quick. But do you think fans are actually going to pay it? Because with free streams being so available now, illegal streams being so available now, I think so many people are just not going to bother and they're just going to find a way to watch it for free. And actually, I don't, I don't see whether how much extra revenue it's going to create. Now, I don't know. That's totally unfounded. I don't know. I'm sure it will create extra revenue, otherwise they wouldn't do it. But to me, it just feels like I don't really know anyone that would be prepared to pay that unless, I guess, it is for their team and they just want to guarantee that they can watch the game and not guarantee on an illegal stream. But I think 
most people I know would just think, well, I'm just going to get the game for, game for free illegally because that is so available now. Well, I think it falls into two categories. Th- those who ha- already have Sky Sports or BT Sport will pay for their team if it's not being shown. Those who don't, won't. You know, and 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 those who probably don't have their own Sky or BT package probably are going to the pubs anyway. And uh, with pub, uh, I'm not sure what the current guidelines or, or rules are around showing sport in pubs. Um, certainly in Scotland at the moment, that's not possible because uh, pubs are shut. But in England, so uh, so whether pubs spend that £15 to show or £30 or £45 to show different different teams on different screens or to show their local team might bolster some revenue in in, in there so uh, it just seems to be that like everything there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction happening um at the at the moment but um but in some funny way i quite like the fact that we lost three o'clock kickoffs again because <laughs> uh because i miss watching uh jeff and the boys on a saturday with lots of three o'clock premier league kickoffs it, it's uh it makes it a lot more intriguing uh, so, as ever, there's a number of things we haven't discussed. So, here's a roundup of some of those top ones. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. In golf, Tyrrell Hatton moved into the world's top 10 for the very first time as he won the BMW at Wentworth this weekend. The third Rolex Series event put him up the leaderboard, but it wasn't enough to catch Patrick Reed, who's still at the top. In the NBA, the LA Lakers have won their 17th NBA championship with LeBron James not talking about his legacy as of yet as once again he takes the team to the top. In boxing, it looks like Fury versus Wilder 3 is set to be cancelled, leading to big speculation over who Fury will fight next. It seems it's certainly set up for Anti Joshua to come in for a big fight next year. In the Women's Super League, both Arsenal and Everton maintain their 100% record as they sit at the top of the tree. And in darts, Welshman Gerwin Price has moved to second in the world as he won the World's Grand Prix this weekend. This is his second major victory, pulling on from his World Series victory last month. So after four weeks of the Fantasy Premier League, I am delighted to see that yours truly is 18 points ahead of Rory. 18, is that it? 18 points. I thought it'd be more. I'm actually quite happy with that. Uh, so, after he tried to copy me with players here and players there, now he's decided he's going to have to get Calvert Lewin in after the wise old owl here saw what I had to have him from the start. Since Hammers Rodriguez was going to come in and create all these goal opportunities. Um, unfortunately, though, I've, I've, uh, I find myself in fifth. Uh, Rory's in ninth. Um, and. Uh, a good, uh, I'm a good 18 points myself off off top spot. But so far, it's been a reasonably interesting, good start to the Utility Players League. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I've um, I'm in a few leagues, and this one has definitely been the most competitive and the most high scoring. So first of all, credit to all you members of the league there putting in such solid performances in our Utility Players League. I'm, I'm very proud of all of you. But I think it's been good. I I. I had a little bit of a wobble after week one. You'll remember. I almost very. I had a poor week one. And was on the verge of playing my wild card in a very rash sort of panic-stricken state. I was in um, in, in the bot in the bottom half of the leaderboard. I almost went straight in and thought, "Oh, my team's rubbish. I want to make big changes already." But I, I stuck firm. 
just made my my few transfers week on week and I had a good couple of weeks and I think we both had a poor week last week which saw us dropped on the table having both been in and around the top five before that but still all to play for well if you hadn't put Grealish on your bench you'd be above me oh right now oh my god don't honestly don't so last week was obviously mad in terms of football. We didn't get to talk about it, but Man U winning six, Man U losing six one at Spurs, and then Villa going one better and, and beating Liverpool seven two. And I thought, well, I can't see Villa getting many goals against Liverpool. I think they might get one. Um, so I just thought for this week, I think Grealish on the bench because I can't see him getting many goals because Liverpool had started the season so well. I couldn't be more wrong. How many points did Grealish get in the end? Scored two goals, got three assists, definitely some bonus points, and just totally ruined what had been a good weekend for me otherwise, in terms of morale. Ruined is the right word. You were furious. I was at the pleasure of Rory's company as as the uh, as the goals were flying in. Uh, once again, going another assist there, another goal there. It is the beauty of um, of fantasy pro league. But I echo the the quality of which our, our, our utility players managers are, are, are putting in this year is is great to see and, and long may it continue um well i've got no guests this week uh, and no top three as, as it's our return to season three uh will be a number of guests and a number of exciting top threes over the week to come um uh, so follow us on our social media platforms to to get an idea of who they're going to be uh, and also as ever for the latest updates Thanks, everyone, once again for your time and uh, stay safe.